I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is an Agents of Impact podcast. In many places across the West, we have uh, 10 times as many trees as would be naturally occurring. And it's this overgrowth when you combine it with an increasingly hotter and drier climate that made 2020 the fire season you saw. But also 2018 was the deadliest wildfire season in history. I think 2017 was the most expensive before this season. So this is clearly not an anomaly. Unfortunately, it is a trend. That's Zach Knight, co-founder and CEO of Blue Forest, a nonprofit fund financing forest resilience through an innovative pay for performance model. Let's jump right in to our conversation. Hi, Zach. Hey, David, how you doing? Good. I've been wanting to talk with you for a while because, as everybody knows, we've had just a terrible fire season out here in in the West, in California, where you and I are, but also Colorado and and, and a bunch of places around the world. And people obviously attribute it to climate change, but they also don't really seem to think that there are solutions. And you're one of the guys I always think about thinking about solutions. And and so I want to get into the blue forest, uh, I think forest resilience bonds. But first, let's just give folks a little bit of context. First of all, um, how did you get interested in forests? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and I do want to take a moment at the beginning of this, David, to acknowledge the impact that these fires have had on everybody uh, really across the West, whether um, something happened to your home or whether you've been breathing bad air, like I was here in Sacramento for months on end and and understanding that these impacts generally hit folks that can't move and can't get out of town when something like this happens. Um, Indeed, the weather was, I mean, if people remember the famous day, the sun never came up uh, when the the smoke moved in. I mean, it was really, uh, it's kind of ending now as the rains begin, but in fact, the rains are late and and there's still forest danger. I think we just are on a red uh, red flag alert today in, in the Bay Area. And especially in Southern California, this is the type of year where we see a lot of fires down in the Chaparral. Uh, biome down in Southern California. So something to watch out for there. Um, But to your question, David, you know, the interest from my end really started in my days working on Wall Street. Uh, I worked uh, at Merrill Lynch and I did a lot of structured finance, securitization work, and and also worked as a bond trader. And I wanted to find some way to use that skill set to really get at something I care about. And it was actually the Morgan Stanley Sustainable Investing Challenge that helped our team at Forest kick everything off. And I know you know about it, but for some of the listeners, it's a competition that Morgan Stanley runs with Kellogg, where the idea is bring us a sustainable investing idea, really any idea, but it has to be novel. Um, But it also has to be appropriate for institutional investors. And given my background, I thought that was a great way to sort of cut my teeth in this space. And the idea um, is really something that had been around for decades. I think we at Blue Forest are standing on the shoulders of many, many other groups that have put something like this together before, um, but we had the ability to run with it. And we're really fortunate to have some great foundations supporting us after that competition to get this out to the pilot phase and actually start to grow this. Before we get to the mechanics of the of the financing, let's just understand what, I mean, we've talked about the problem. What is The solution is a kind of forest management interventions, which as you say, are kind of well-known and, and, and scientifically proven, but what just what are they? What do, you, what do we do to, to help better manage the forests? Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've heard a lot of conversations of, is it forest management or is it climate change? And the answer is obviously it's both, right? I mean, I mean, President Trump was saying, you know, we need to rake the leaves or rake the forest floors. I don't know if that's what we're talking about or not. I think that would have been hard in our first project in Sierra County because the whole county has a population of about 4,000. So we would have needed a lot of people, a lot more people than that out there raking the leaves, David. 
Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So it's good to introduce folks to the concept of ecological-based forest restoration, which is really doing scientifically what makes the most sense for the landscape to restore ecological function uh, where it's been lost. And to understand what needs to happen on the landscape, I think we do need to step back and say, how have these landscapes changed over the last 100 or 150 years? And if you went back before European forest management practices, you saw many of the groups that had been in these parts of the West for thousands of years um, doing a lot of cultural burns in our forests. And that was really important to reduce the vegetation in certain areas. And it was really part of a natural process that they were helping to start. Did you call it a cultural burn? Yeah, cultural burn. Sometimes it's uh, known as traditional ecological knowledge, but it's really drawing on um, the knowledge from indigenous groups, uh, First Nations that were here that had frankly been managing the forest quite well for well over a thousand years. And so as people know, then that would help burn out the underbrush a bit. And then the, when the fires come, they wouldn't go up into the canopies and become a raging inferno. It's exactly right. So we, we expect in different ecosystems, ecosystems like the Sierra Nevada, to see fire come through every you know 10 to 30 years, perhaps. That's called a fire return interval. Um, and what had happened was we got really far away from that because we looked at the forest, and, and this is uh, European management practices as the U.S. moved west to build the railroads and really build the west, and we saw every one of those trees as taxpayer dollars that really needed to be protected. So the Forest Service started something that was known as uh, the 10 a.m. rule, where every fire had to be out by 10 a.m. the next day to really help preserve that timber stock. But what that did was create unnaturally dense forests. And in many places across the West, we have uh, 10 times as many trees as would be naturally occurring. And it's this overgrowth when you combine it with an increasingly hotter and drier climate that made 2020 the fire season you saw. But also 2018 was the deadliest wildfire season in history. I think 2017 was the most expensive before this season. So this is clearly not an anomaly. Unfortunately, it is a trend. And so folks know, scientists know, um, forest managers know what to do, and there are proven interventions that work? Yeah, often what that work is, is really trying to reinvigorate that natural fire cycle data in a lot of ways. So you might go in and thin by hand or on a mechanical basis, some of the small diameter trees, say trees that are under 12 or 18 inches. Um, you may prepare an area to put a broadcast burn or prescribed fire on the ground. And again, that's to reinvigorate that natural fire cycle that we've been talking about. But these projects also have other elements. There's meadow restoration. Uh, our project in the Tahoe has some aspen regeneration where aspen have been pushed out by conifers. Um, so really trying to regenerate that. And that could be something that helps from a water quality standpoint, but it can also help habitat and other ecosystem services that I think we don't always think as much about from a financing perspective. All right. Well, you just mentioned the what I was going to bring up. You do have a, a an ongoing project. Again, I want to put off the financing part of it for a second, but just tell folks about what is going on, has been going on in the Tahoe National Forest. Yes. Thanks so much uh, for asking about that, David. So uh, Blue Forest was fortunate to launch our first ever Forest Resilience Bond pilot project in late 2018 on the Tahoe National Forest in California. And this was developed over a number of years in really close partnership. Uh, with the U.S. Forest Service and the World Resources Institute. Uh, and what's happening in that project, it was designed by the U.S. Forest Service to protect about 15,000 acres. 
And within that 15,000 acres, there's about 7,000 treatment acres. So some of that is thinning. Uh, a good portion of it, about 4,000 of those acres are prescribed fire. So actually putting that fire back on the ground. But there is also um, about four or 500 acres each of meadow restoration and aspen regeneration in these projects as well. One of the other things that you'll see pretty commonly is road decommissioning. There's actually more roads running through our national forests, old logging roads, than our whole highway system uh, combined. So a lot of those roads are old, they're deteriorating, and they can have huge negative impacts on water quality, even if there isn't a fire in the forest. So uh, that is also a part of projects like the project on the top. So I'm getting a picture here that there's uh, a known set of interventions that could work that, as you say, have ecological basis, maybe have a cultural basis, as you say. Um, and I gather I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a wild guess here that the problem with implementing it more widely is money. Absolutely. Uh, we should talk so about that. That, gets, <laughs> that brings us squarely into Blue Forest's work here. And just describe briefly what the money problem is, and then we get to the, to the solution. Yeah, and I think it's important to take folks back and go back maybe 20, 25 years to the mid-90s, where the U.S. Forest Service spent, you know, 15 or 16 percent of their budget on fire suppression, fighting, actively fighting these fires. If you fast forward to 2017, the Forest Service spent $2.7 billion, or about 56% of its budgets, fighting wildfires. And what that meant was we were really stuck in a vicious cycle where we were spending money today to put out fires that was pulling resources away uh, from these restoration treatments that could really prevent tomorrow's fires. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to use the power of finance to bring forward all of these benefits and all these commitments to get more of this work done now, because at the end of the day, this is a problem of immediacy. And we can see when you look at what's available, uh, forest service budgets, other public budgets, it pales in comparison to the total need. So let me give you just a couple quick numbers there. On average, the forest service is spending about half a billion dollars on restoration each year, maybe a little bit more in the last couple of years. The state of California has one of the largest forest health grant programs, or I should say the largest, in the Western U.S. at about $200 million a year. When you compare that to the size of the need on forest service land alone, they've identified in excess of $80 billion backlog of this ecological restoration work to help reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfire around the West. So when you hear those numbers together, you get the sense that between public and philanthropic funding alone, we're probably not going to be able to get there without private capital. So you have a problem where prevention efforts, or it's not just fire prevention, but let's just call it management efforts uh, that, that would uh, reduce and, and, and the, the damages, get squeezed out by the crisis spending on fighting the fires themselves. And so you're, as you said, a vicious cycle. And it's interesting because there's been other mechanisms. You're well aware of them. In fact, that Morgan Stanley challenge that you uh, that you mentioned surfaces a lot of things like this, where you in effect find a way to finance those early interventions that inarguably pay off and pencil out in the long term, but often get squeezed out of the budgeting process. So, just give us the brief and and possibly simplified uh, flowchart of of how you overcome that problem. Yeah, that's a it's a great point, David. So there there are folks on the ground who help the Forest Service to manage these projects. In fact, there's nonprofits like our partner in the, on the Tahoe is the National Forest Foundation. And they're actually the congressionally chartered nonprofit arm of US Forest Service. And the Forest Service relies on a lot of these partners to help implement these forest health treatments once they've been planned. 
these are conservation crews that you might see, you know, out, out in the field with axes and hoes, uh, clear, clearing things and cutting things down. Absolutely. And sometimes there is heavy equipment as well. But when you're cutting fire line or doing some of the hand thinning, you're exactly right. These would be, we call them fire crews out there working to set up that fire line or prepare for prescribed fire in some cases. Exactly. And what's important to understand, too, is who manages the process of, of hiring all these contractors. We don't do that at Blue Forest. It's not our expertise. We provide financing to the group on the ground that the Forest Service chooses to manage these projects. And we thought as we were putting this together, David, that there's so many other groups that benefit from these forest restoration projects. How do we simplify this so that one group on the ground can be managing the projects and they don't have to think about scientific reporting and getting together with the academic groups to rerun the economic analysis, right? So how do we simplify that so that that group, the National Forest Foundation, can get right in and manage that project on the ground? So really simply put, the way we've created the Forest Resilience Bond, it's a public-private partnership in which the investors are actually lenders to a project-specific vehicle, and we stand up one of these project-specific vehicles for each one of these projects that we'll work on. And I think that's really helpful to create both transparency and accountability, not just for our investors, but for our other stakeholders as well. Um, we then borrow money from investors as it's needed to complete the project over the course of the years. And we pass that along to the group like the National Forest Foundation, who manages the project on the ground. There are then uh, different layers of government, federal government, state government, local municipal government that have different contracts and agreements based on the authorities that they have to either reimburse or repay investors over time. So we might work with the Forest Service through a cooperative agreement. The state of California might uh, sign a grant agreement that's reimbursable in nature, which can create some working capital challenges for groups on the ground. And then we also work with utilities who are sort of the new money in some ways that understand that they benefit from this work, but traditionally haven't been big investors, or at least haven't been before the last 10 years or so. Um, and we often sign a contract with them that can be a cost share contract or it can be a performance-based contract, really whatever works best for the stakeholders. And then when you put all of that together, as that reimbursement and repayment comes in, that's what we use to ultimately repay the lenders at their stated rate of interest. So outside investors put up the upfront money, the money goes to these contractors who do the work, and they, then, then the government agencies uh, reimburse through their various mechanisms, as you said, and those investors get, get paid back. Um, so you've brought the money forward to enable the work to get going. And what's really critical, David, that I want to flag for you is that, um, again, both federal and state grants that do this work are reimbursable in nature and for obvious reasons, right? The state or the federal government can't hand out money and hope that work gets done. But what challenge that creates is often that you can't hire small local contractors if you're a nonprofit and you've got a $5 million grant from the state, but it takes them three to six months to make payments when you show them the invoice. Uh, it can be really, really challenging to hire those local contractors because they often can't go a whole work season without paying their staff that's on the ground. So we wanted to be really intentional as we developed this. And we said to the National Forest Foundation, show us the invoice and we'll get you paid in a week so you can get that money out to the contractors. And that's a big part of this solving this problem, David, is looking at the whole system overall and saying, well, we actually don't have enough contractor capacity to do this work. So we need to hire more local folks and build that local capacity. We don't have enough infrastructure to take some of this small diameter timber out of the forest and, and do something of good use for it. 
So looking at the system overall and trying to identify those pinpoints has been really, really helpful. And also it demands that you work with local partners uh, on these projects as well. I remember when you first got going, and I think it was in, during that uh, original um, uh, Morgan Stanley Challenge, um, and, and and I should say Kellogg um, uh, School of Management likes to likes to be in there as well um, as a co-sponsor and founder of that challenge. Um, the original payment mechanism, as I remember, was that the Forest Service or others who might have savings from their firefighting budget would then be able to pay for this prevention and thereby save save you know have some budget savings. And then I think that that you also then, as you said, there's new money from from utilities. Just tell us how sort of who the I guess the beneficiaries are who are finding that it's valuable to participate. Yeah, absolutely. And David, I mentioned this at the top of the the show, but I think it is also really important if for folks out there, entrepreneurs and otherwise, to go out and see what's been done before. Because as I mentioned, we weren't the first person to think of this. In fact, um, Encourage Capital published something a couple of years beforehand funded by the Walton Family Foundation that called this out. We actually found groups going all the way back to the 90s that had worked on some version of this in some way. And I think what was really new from what we were looking at was not just saying, hey, an avoided cost for the federal government could be the basis of a pay for performance contract, which certainly has some challenges to it. But hey, there are so many other groups that benefit. If we could just quantify some of those benefits, I think we could bring those groups to the table. And that's what a lot of our early partnerships at Blue Forest were geared towards. We worked really closely with uh, UC Merced this year and about a research institute and then the Natural Capital Project at Stanford to understand what are these ecosystem services? Who are the leading academics in the field that have developed the models that are really well trusted by other stakeholders that we could bring to these utilities? And they'd say, yes, we understand that. And that is credible to us. And the bene benefits of the utilities have to do with, um, not, not with firefighting savings, but with watershed management and, and water supply, right? Absolutely. I mean, certainly from firefighting, and they are not responsible for paying for a fire, but if a fire were to happen on that watershed, you could damage infrastructure. Uh, Post-fire flooding is a challenge everywhere across the U.S., turbidity, water quality issues, sediment transport. All of those things can be incredibly expensive when you're a utility and you're looking at a reservoir where you expected that to have a 50 or 100 year useful life and now it's full of sediment and needs to be dredged out again. So a lot of it is actually trying to avoid those costs, but some portion of it, especially on the western slope of the Sierra, is understanding if there's not as many trees, might there be more flows or may we maintain flows and not see those continue to go down over time to you know expand that out, David, to what we were talking about right at the top of the call, air quality, right? A utility would be very interested in having good air quality uh, for all of their ratepayers, um, especially if you don't want your ratepayers to move out of these areas. So I think there's it's not just water, it's not just carbon, it's not just air quality, it's community resilience uh, on a broader basis. You were telling me that the some in some cases the water quality or the water supply increase uh, is 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 a more valuable benefit than even the timber itself. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, at least it's true in California. It may not be as true up in the Pacific Northwest and in other areas, but but here in California, yeah, I think you could argue that the ecosystem services related to water are much more valuable than the timber is going to be, especially in these ecological restoration projects where you're just not harvesting the big trees that tend to be more valuable from that standpoint. And again, if we can shift the harvest away from those larger trees, those trees are actually the ones that keep the watershed together they sequester more carbon. So 
by creating a healthy forest around those large trees, we can promote that successional growth while also making sure that carbon is more stable and more durable in those trees because you're reducing the risk, not of fire, fire is a good thing on the landscape, but of large catastrophic fire coming through these watersheds. Well, it makes me think what did happen on some of the lands that were managed more more effectively over the past years. Did, did they burn this this summer? And if so, you know, were the did it did it play out as expected, or or what did you learn? Uh, you're going to have to check back with me and, and some of the groups that we work with, and maybe in a year or so. So the burned area assessment team is doing that work right now. They've done the quick ones on the Forest Service, and there have been lots of examples of fire that hit these treatments and went to ground and became a safe, healthy ground fire again. Um, so that'll be great to see that. I think we're also going to see evidence of places that were um, harvested or over-harvested actually burning worse than we expected. So it'd be really interesting to see some of the results. And this gets back to if you plan your forest restoration projects, if it truly is ecological restoration, you're much likely to have better outcomes uh, when these large damaging fires do roll through. Well, so then the question becomes, if this does work, let's just let's just posit that. I'll wait for the data, as you say. But if it does work, we would want to do this much more broadly. What are the prospects for truly scaling this up? Well, there's a lot of prospects out there, David. And I think the way we scale this is the question that's on everybody's mind. In the state of California, they've been really looking at a regional approach, working through things like uh, RCDs, resource conservation districts, for example, to help implement these projects, not saying the whole state is going to do this, but more allowing these regions and these smaller groups, often known as forest collaboratives, that are the groups that create the social license to move forward and do these projects on national forest system land or on private land or on state land. Um, finding more ways to support those groups is going to be important. And what we've tried to do from a financing perspective, because as you may or may not know, David, the first project was only a $4 million raise, which is certainly far, far short of an institutional investment product. But we want to work in these watersheds and say, can we scale this up with the same stakeholders, the same contracts, the same investment vehicle, maybe the same investors in that same watershed, such that we can be seeding a number of critical uh, forest resilience bond projects to pilot and then expanding that program as time goes on with all those stakeholders as they reach success. So I think that's a really important way to look at how are you going to get this on the ground and invest in that system and then expand as that system I was talking about sort of allows you to do so. Um, and that's what we're working on right now at Blue Forest, not just expanding the first project into something larger, but also seeding our next cohort of pilot projects. And then, as you said, you've been raising money and, and financing these on a project by project basis. But then um, there's and you and go back to your old Wall Street days. You can roll this all together into a bigger fund, raise bigger money, as you said, institutional money. Is that part of the plan? It is in the future. And I think when we want to go out with a fund structure, which many of investors have nudged us towards doing. So we hear you. Thank you for all that feedback. We want to make sure we have an adequate pipeline uh, of those projects so that if we earn commitments from uh, future lenders in those projects, we'll be able to deploy that capital uh, pretty quickly. So right now, I don't think we're going to launch a fund for our next project. We're going to get the next project off the ground and show that sort of pilot to scale vision. And then I think we could be introducing a fund shortly thereafter, which would be really exciting. And again, for the listeners, this is all in uh, the fixed income space. 
in, indeed, and 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 as you as you were describing to me, uh, Blue Forest itself is a is a nonprofit fund manager. Um, as as you say, these are relatively straightforward loans getting repaid at relatively straightforward or even low interest rates. Um, this is not a venture capital <laughs> unicorn kind of investment. This is a, a rally a lot of money and get some 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 effective uh, forest management uh, financed in a way that hadn't been possible. Yeah, indeed. Um, but I would say on that front, this is what I tell a lot of students when I do the mentorship for the Morgan Stanley competition is you've got to know your investors. So we have a product here that is relatively low risk. It's contracts and agreements with highly rated government counterparties. It's relatively low return, but it's very high impact. And I think what that sort of led us towards is saying groups like donor advised funds are going to be potentially a great fit for investment in this, but also groups like insurance companies. We did have a $9 billion insurance company as an investor, just a single million dollars into this first project. But that opened our eyes to a whole world that we hadn't really seen before. And we actually worked with the Department of Insurance here in California to get our investment vehicle certified so that any insurers in California could invest in something like this as well, which is important because there's, I think, four and a half trillion dollars of insurance assets in the state of California alone. So pretty big pool if we're trying to solve some big problems here. Well, you've got a, you, you do have a big problem and you said a big pool. And it's uh, like I said, it's very refreshing to have you being uh, able to describe solutions to this challenge, which, um, you know, Californians and others um, uh, sort of waking up to the fact that this is not a <laughs> this is not an occasional thing. This is an annual thing. And so we better get we better get on top of it. So thank you so much, Zach Knight of Blue Forest, for um, laying all that out for us and look forward to following your work in the future. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate the opportunity. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. You can read more about Zach and Blue Forest at impactalpha.com. Subscribers receive full access to Impact Alpha content, including deal flow, job postings, and members-only Agents of Impact calls. Grab Impact Alpha's best deal of the year, 50% off an annual subscription. That's $200 off the regular price. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thanks to Zach Knight and our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha, investment news for a sustainable age.